Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. This week, the Northern Ireland Executive published plans for easing out of lockdown. Stormont joined Scotland and Wales in rejecting Boris Johnson's stay alert slogan in favour of its own plans. We must stay alert, control the virus and save lives. Both the North and the Republic have chosen a five-stage plan. In addition, Stormont has elected not to fix dates for the rest of the plan. Dr Lindsay Broadbent is a virologist and research fellow at Queen's University Belfast. Lindsay, Stormont has rejected Boris Johnson's lockdown exit plan in favour of its own five-point plan. Was this the right decision, do you think? It's hard to say at this stage what the right decision is until we see the consequences of easing of lockdown. But what I would say is Northern Ireland's plan does look very sensible. Um, I I like the fact that it's subject to change and they've not set anything in stone, uh, which is, again, very sensible. And it's a, a very balanced, very measured approach to this. And the document that was released to go along with the statement um, is detailed. Um, hopefully they will release more details in the coming weeks. But it certainly left people a lot less confused, I would say, than Boris's initial sta- statement on, on Sunday evening. In the South, we have a, a scheduled roadmap uh, of dates for easing the lockdown. However, uh, as you say, the North is, is, uh, has a looser arrangement uh, in terms of dates and it says it will be guided by science and not the, the calendar. Isn't that right? Yes, and a lot of people will like dates. Um, they say it is something to aim for and something to work towards. Other people won't like dates because if uh, we're not on target, um, then it doesn't seem like such a loss if that week has to be pushed back. Um, so I think that's going to vary between people um, on the topic of dates. I'm I'm not sure where I stand. I think I think it would be good to have a date for the first phase. Um, and then leave the subsequent phases up to be decided really based on the science. Um, And I think that would kind of be somewhere in between. Um, But I do understand the fact that there is or isn't dates is quite an issue of discussion at the minute. But I suppose the reality is that that we have two different approaches on on the island now. Would it it be better if we adopted an all-island approach? It's difficult to say. I think obviously... Um, an all-island approach would take out all of the issues around the border um, and there will be some and I think several of those have already been addressed such as the uh, travel ban or the the two-week incubation period of people traveling across the border either way will not matter that will not come into effect here which is good Um, but I would say that the Northern Irish plan and the Southern Irish plan are not that different. They they seem to follow very sensible, very similar guidelines about at what stage each thing, each easement of the lockdown measures will happen. The biggest difference, as I've mentioned, is debts. Um, and again, Ireland have said, quite rightly so, that their debts are also subject to change. Um, I don't think we're, we're that different at the minute. Are you worried about a second wave once we do start easing? Yes, I I am. Um, A second wave is very likely and really how severe that second wave is 
um, is down to how well we handle easing lockdown measures um, and how responsive we are to the data that comes out. And if cases and deaths start to rise again, that we implement lockdown measures very quickly to make sure that we don't have a second peak that could be worse than the first. Recently, there have been questions about why the, the R number in the north is so high. What are your thoughts on this? It, it's hard to say. Um, without knowing how the modelling is done for the R numbers, it's difficult to know where those figures come from. Um, for example, R, is the whole of the community being included in the R number um, or are care homes not? Because the R number within the care home sector of society will be much higher than the general population. Um, so it's hard to comment without seeing the breakdown of where those figures have come from. Um, at an earlier stage, uh, Lindsay, in this, uh, you said that the, that the Irish government had had overreacted in, in some ways. Um, and certainly its approach to closing schools, I think you felt at the time, there wasn't the scientific evidence for that. Um, would you still uh, hold that view? Uh, when I mentioned about the overreaction, I think it was the, the speed at which that was announced. Um, it, it gave parents and families no time to prepare. Um, and those key workers that still had to go to work the next day were then in a position where they had children at home, but also had to go and work in a hospital or a care home or in other key working positions. And I think that was um, very quick and I think there should have been kind of some structure around that and some guidelines really. Um, although there, and there is data coming out now saying, although children can be infected with this virus, they are not the ones passing it on. They are not the ones driving the infection um, in the vast majority of society. Um, most infections are driven by adults and adults contact with other adults. Um, which is why in some European countries now, some schools have started to return, um, such as in Germany. And we will not know the true effect of schools and the effect schools reopening have on the infection rates until we know what happens in countries like Germany in the next few weeks. Lindsay, this week uh, we've had um, our own Taoiseach uh, saying that the the evidence uh, suggests that, that reopening schools and, and childcare facilities is one of the safest things we could do at the moment. Do you agree with that position? The virus transmission is not driven by young children. The most likely place you are to be infected is within your own home. It's much less likely to happen in a nursery or a school if you're a child. We also know that uh, children are much less likely to suffer severe disease from this virus, although they do seem to be able to carry the virus. Um, but there is some worrying emerging evidence coming out. And this is, this is very new evidence, so it, it requires a lot more work and a lot more research um, that children may suffer an inflammatory disease as a result of SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, that resembles something called Kawasaki disease. And, and that, that could be cause for concern um, in children. But as I said, the evidence currently is still too little and much too early to tell. Back in March, Queen's were awarded a, a, a grant in a bid to find a treatment for COVID-19. How, how's that research going now? 
It's going. Um, I'm involved in that research project. Um, we are currently looking at over a thousand drugs and combinations of different drugs. I think all in all with the different combinations, it's I think 500,000 combina drug combinations. Um, and these are of already licensed drugs. So these are things used to treat other conditions. Um, and if we find something that works, then it means the safety profile has already been done. We know these are already administered to, to patients and we can very quickly get something into a clinical trial. Lindsay, what do you think are the most important things that we need to focus on uh, over the weeks and months ahead in terms of trying to resume normal life? We certainly need to keep a very close eye on the number of new infections and the number of deaths occurring and if we start to see those increase again then we need to look at what easing measures have been introduced and which of those may be responsible for the increasing cases um, and if those measures need to be rescinded we also need to put a huge emphasis i think on um, testing tracing and isolating that's going to be incredibly important as we come out of this epidemic so that we can find those cases and make sure they those people are infect, that are infected infect as few other people as possible. And that will help continue to reduce the number of overall infections. And in terms of a vaccine, what's a realistic time frame? For most vaccines, a realistic time frame is 10 years. Um, so if we get anything this year or next year, it will be the fastest vaccine creation there has ever been. Uh, I know there are some incredibly promising vaccine uh, candidates currently being trialled, including one that was developed at Oxford, um, and that does look very promising. I think it will still be next year at the very earliest that we were to have a vaccine if everything goes to plan with the current vaccine candidates. If they don't work, then we return to square one and have to start vaccine development again, and then all of the safety protocols and the clinical trials. Um, so best case scenario, I think it will be next year. Um, will the fact that the virus uh, can mutate uh, hamper those efforts to, to find a vaccine? All viruses mutate. Um, they, they do this all the time, very naturally. But what we need to be careful of is what parts of the virus are mutating and how fast they mutate. And the evidence we have so far is that uh, SARS-CoV-2 is pretty stable. There are small mutations occurring, but nothing that has emerged so far should hamper vaccine development. Um, it, it seems fairly stable. And what do we understand now about immunity to the virus once you've had it? There is evidence emerging all the time on this. A lot of people are working on it. Um, and there does seem to be some good evidence that the majority of people that have been infected produce antibodies, which is fantastic news. Um, there is also some research showing that these antibodies do confer immunity. But what we don't know yet is how long that immunity will last. If it's like other coronaviruses that we get infected with, every year as the common cold, then we may have immunity for months to a couple of years. Um, it's unlikely we'll have lifelong immunity, but we really need to figure out how long that immunity will last. Is it months or is it years? And that will also determine um, a vaccine uh, schedule. For example, will it end up being something like the flu vaccine that we need to have every 
couple of years, every year, every couple of years? Or will it be something that we can be injected with once and then we should have protection for five years? That's still a big unknown at the moment. So we're we're talking about, you know, uh, a kind of a, a, a clear timetable uh, in relation to lifting restrictions. But but we will continue to have very restrictive advice in place for cocooners um, in the south. Um, what's your view on that? I mean, what kind of period of time uh, do you think we could be talking about here? It's incredibly hard to put a timeline on really any of this, um, but those that are shielding or cocooning are the most vulnerable and the most likely to suffer severe disease. So we really need to be incredibly careful um, with advice for those people in our community. Um, I understand it's difficult. There are a lot of people that haven't left their house for a very long time, um, which obviously has mental health implications and other implications. Um, so I think we will start to see guidelines around people that are shielding or cocooning um, that they may be able to start uh, going out, walking, as long as they're maintaining social distance, hopefully in the early summer. What has surprised you, Lindsay, most about the coronavirus since, since this outbreak has started? Really how much we've learned about it in such a short space of time. Um, to put it into perspective, when HIV was discovered, to get to this level of knowledge took over a decade. Um, so the, the scientific community and, and the healthcare sector and the reporters and everyone that's really been involved in finding information out about this virus, it's happened incredibly quickly. And it's also happened in a very collaborative way, which is fantastic. Um, the open access science that has been done around this really is the first of its kind and, and rather groundbreaking. And finally, what's your view on the use of face coverings or face masks uh, out of a healthcare setting? So firstly, we need to make sure that proper PPE, respirator masks, surgical masks are reserved for healthcare workers, carers and frontline staff. Um, after that, I think if you're going to wear a homemade face mask or a scarf, um, then why not? The evidence around masks is quite limited, um, but there does seem to be some evidence that they may reduce transmission. So face coverings, homemade masks will not prevent you getting infected at all. Um, but if you were to cough or sneeze, um, you're less likely to infect someone else. So they, they do have a possible role. Um, and a lot of people have obviously been using um, Asian countries as an example, for example, China, Taiwan, Singapore, um, as an example, uh, that they have lower transmission rates and they wear face coverings. That is anecdotal evidence at the minute. And there are several groups researching the efficacy of masks um, but I would say if you're going to wear a homemade face covering, that's fine. Just make sure you're washing them every day in incredibly hot water. Uh, boil them if you can. Um, so you'll need several so you can cycle them. And do not touch your mask when you're out. You have to treat your mask like it's infected on the outside. It's contaminated. So if you touch that mask and then touch a surface, you're contaminating that surface. So you have to be incredibly conscious when you're wearing a mask to not touch your face. Lindsay, thank you. My thanks to Suzanne Brennan, who produced today's podcast. 
and thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back tomorrow. Thank you.